Well, our passage this evening is 1 Kings chapter 4, and uh, we've been thinking about uh, uh, Solomon and his request for wisdom the last time in chapter 3, and how God granted that, and how it's demonstrated in, um, in this uh, rather unusual story of uh, two women that come arguing over a baby, and um, Solomon's wisdom is able to resolve that. And um, this chapter, I think, well, I, I, I gave it a working title of Wisdom and Its Effects. <laughs> um, how does it work out in the nation? And uh, how does Solomon's wisdom benefit everyone? Wisdom and its effects. But, uh, well, before we get any further, let's, uh, let's read the chapter. And I just warn you that the first half of uh, is is a number of lists of names, and uh, so get ready. <laughs> so verse one: King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, Zadok was the priest. Elihoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Achilud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabud, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. Ahashar was in charge of the palace. And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of forced labor. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. These were their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Decker in Machaz, uh, Shalbim, Beth-Shemesh, and (laughs) in Machaz, Shalbim, and Beth-Shemesh, and Elon-Beth-Hanan, Ben-Chesed, in Araboth, to him belongs Sukho and all the land of Hefer, Ben Abinadab, and all Naphath Dor. He had Taphath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife, Bana, the son of Ahilut, and Tanach, Megiddo, and all Beth Shean, that is beside Zarathan below Jezreel, and from Beth Shean to Abel Mehola as far as the other side of Jokmeam. Ben Geber, in, Ra- in Ramoth Gilead, he had the villages of Jer, uh, the son of Manasseh, which were in Gilead. And he had the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, 60 great cities with walls and bronze bars. Ahinadab, the son of Ido, in Mahanaim, and uh, Achimaz, in Naphtali, he had taken Basemath, the daughter of, the, of Solomon as his wife, Bana, the son of Hushai, in Asher and Bealoth, Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua, in Asakar, Shimei, the son of Elah, in Benjamin, Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. And there was one governor who ruled over the land. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. 
They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tiphash to Gaza, uh, sorry, Tifsah to Gaza, over all the kings of the west, west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all the men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts, and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Let's pray, shall we? Father, again we pray that uh, as we meditate on this passage, uh, that our meditations would be pleasing to you. And uh, as with the words that come from my mouth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when when we were in chapter 3, we saw how Solomon, um, who had just come to the throne of Israel, uh, sought wisdom from the Lord. He was... He was given carte blanche, wasn't he? Uh, what would you have from me, says God. And, and he says, I need wisdom to be able to rule properly uh, for the sake of the nation of Israel. And uh, it's good and right that he did that. Um, uh, after all, here's, here's Solomon. He's now king, and as such, he is, in a sense, shepherd of the people. He has to care for them and guard them and keep them. And uh, as with any position of responsibility and authority, um, great wisdom is required for, for that task. Um, any old fool can, can get into a position of power and abuse it, but uh, wisdom uh, is needed to do things well, and uh, Solomon asks for it. And that principle of seeking wisdom for the, the tasks that God has given you is... Uh, is a principle that applies to Christians uh, today. So, uh, as we noted last time, uh, James writes in James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Every Christian has access to wisdom, if only you will come to God and ask for it and walk with him. 
as possible uh, to grow in wisdom. And uh, you may not think you're very wise, but uh, praise God, by his grace, he is working wisdom in you. If you're a Christian today, he is helping you to grow in wisdom and uh, not be a fool, (laughs) as uh, some of us have been and maybe still are. Uh, We can grow in wisdom. So as we come to wisdom, uh, come to God, he is full of, he is all wisdom. He is freely willing to give of his wisdom to his own people who are willing to ask for it. Well, last time we looked at Solomon, how Solomon asked for this gift from heaven. And he came with great humility before God, recognizing him as the, the, the all-generous God who is willing to give everything. Uh, he, he prayed, Solomon prayed, uh, recognizing God's past faithfulness. So he has uh, a recognition of who God is and what he's done in the past. Uh, and Solomon comes with and asking for things with a view to serving the people under his care. So he wasn't asking for selfish things like riches and long life, um, although God gave him those things uh, as a side product, if you like, of his asking for wisdom. But uh, to ask this way, to ask for wisdom in order to help and to serve other people is, uh, is one of the uh, marvelous things that uh, is pleasing to God. And, um, uh, and it's, uh, it's an encouragement uh, to us as we look at Sa- uh, so- Solomon in these chapters. Well, this chapter, I think, uh, we see more c- concretely how Solomon's wisdom brings benefits to everyone else. So wisdom in its effect um, is, is what I'm thinking of this evening. Uh, three, I think the chapter falls into three, three sections. So verses 1 to 20, first of all, uh, we see how Solomon orders the affairs of the nation and the regions under his dominion. Uh, Secondly, we see how blessed the people are in that setting, how content they are, how (laughs) joyful they become. And thirdly, we see how true wisdom uh, glories in the works of God. True wisdom glories in the works of God. It gets excited about the works of God and wants to investigate and find out more. And uh, that's encouragement for, for uh, all of us. Well, first of all, um, how does Solomon order the affairs of the nations? He's come to, he's come to the throne, but he needs to sort a few things out uh, when he comes. And um, uh, verses 1 to 20 uh, show us uh, the order and structure that's put into place in the nation of Israel and beyond. Um, and it, it's presented to us, and it may seem to us that it's a rather boring list of, of names and jobs. And uh, you may want to kind of skip over it rather quickly. But, of course, it is quite important uh, that we pay attention to what's going on uh, here. Because uh, uh, it's in Scripture for a reason. And if it's there, then we should think, well, why does God want me to know about that? And that's always a good question to ask. What does God want me to know about this? Um, Even the puzzling bits and the apparently boring bits. Why does God want me to to know about this? So in verses 1 to 6, what we see here is the appointment of what might be called Solomon's cabinet. You know, government has a cabinet. uh, Lots of ministers sitting around the table, you know, working on the different areas that they they have to work on uh, for the whole nation. 
And uh, Solomon appoints this, uh, this kind of cabinet. First of all, it starts with a priest. Um, uh, Azariah is appointed as the priest, not just a priest, but the priest. So in a sense, it looks like Azariah is the chief priest uh, above all others. There's going to be some other priests. So Zadok, uh, Azariah's father, is a priest as well, and Abiathar is a priest. And uh, just a couple of things to say about that. Um, uh, first of all, uh, one, one thing is that you know, there's no separation between church and state at this stage in history, in redemptive history. Uh, Israel is a theocratic nation under God. So it's right to have uh, a priest involved in the governing of the, uh, of the nation. And uh, it's appropriate, therefore. Secondly, you might notice that, you might, if you've been paying attention, uh, you might notice, uh, who's this guy, Abiathar? Didn't he get deposed in the previous chapter, or chapter 2? Wasn't he removed from office uh, because he took the wrong side? He supported um, Adonijah against Solomon. And, uh, and then he was deposed in chapter 2. He wasn't put to death. Uh, verses 27 and 35 of chapter 2. Uh, let me just read them to you. Um, so Solomon expelled Abiathar from being, being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And then verse 35. Uh, the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in place of Abiathar. So Abiathar seems to be out in chapter 2, but here he is. He's back in again. Now why? <laughs> We're not actually told why. It's, uh, it's a bit of a puzzle, but you know, I, I just wonder, uh, is it possible that Abiathar had a complete change of heart? That previously he had been, he didn't think much of Solomon. He, he supported Adonijah. But now that he sees Solomon and he sees him in all his wisdom, maybe he's had a complete change of heart and uh, Solomon has seen that and uh, perhaps appointed him and re- restored him to office. Um, maybe. It's intriguing, isn't it? And uh, there's probably not much more we can say about that. But uh, it's always encouraging to see that people can be restored uh, to where they once were, even though they have failed in the past. In addition to the priests, there were the secretaries and recorders. Uh, it's not entirely clear what those were. Uh, but in any organization, you need people skilled in administration, don't you? Uh, so these are the kind of administrators of the, of the kingdom. Then there's a com- commander of the army, um, Je- uh, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. Um, and there was somebody placed over the tax system. Uh, so Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. And the officers are going to be explained in verse 7 onwards. Um, so there's somebody in charge of all of those uh, regional officers. We'll get to those in a second. And, um, and there's a counselor to the king, a friend of the king. Um, I uh, uh, lost it for a second. Where is it? Uh, somewhere there. Uh, you can find it yourself <laughs> later. But there's a friend, you know, a counselor, a consigliere uh, to, to the king um, is appointed as well. And uh, so that's verses 1 to 6, the cabinet's appointed. Verses 7 to 20, we see that 12 people are appointed in the regions of the dominion of Solomon. And uh, the 12 is an enticing number. It makes it sound like it's the 12 tribes, but it doesn't quite match with all the tribes. Um, There seems to be some administrative development in the division of the land. But uh, nonetheless, here's the 12 
Uh, and uh, it's a good number, isn't it? Because, well, there's 12 months in the year. And each, each one can be responsible for providing to the, the king's household all that the king needs and all his household needs to, to keep functioning. And that's what they did. So once a month, once, once one month a year, you would have the responsibility of supplying to the king all that he, he needs for his household. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, when I read this at first, I was thinking, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of flour and a lot of meal and 10 oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle and 100 sheep a day. He's not going to eat all that. So it must be for the whole administration. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a kind of tax, uh, if you like, uh, to support the, uh, the services that the government provides, to put it in modern terms. And uh, so here we have this, uh, what you might call a well-ordered system of government. And as we'll see in a moment, it works well for everyone. Okay, so what's the relevance of all of that for us today? Well, it shows us the benefits of wisdom uh, that wisdom brings in bringing decency and order to things. Um, And it applies to all sorts of areas of life. Um, So I'm going to digress a little bit. Some of you will be too young to remember, and some of you are are not from this country originally, so you might not know this illustration. But uh, you may remember back to 1997, and uh, uh, after 18 years of Conservative Party rule in this country, uh, new Labour came to power, and it was all very exciting, and everybody was very excited about it. It was a landslide victory, and uh, everybody thought there was going to be radical change in the country. And one of the the radical changes... Uh, that uh, the Tony Blair government brought in was uh, what became known as SOFA government. SOFA government. So instead of having uh, meetings around, formal meetings with suits and ties, sitting around tables and recording minutes and motions and and, uh, votes and stuff like that, they would sit around on sofas. I don't know, and have potato chips or something. (laughs) I don't know, but sofa government, they just sit around, you know, and just chat about stuff. And, uh, you know, maybe things will get done better in a nicer way. And uh, so that's how it kind of progressed. Uh, the government progressed. Well, it didn't actually work particularly well. Um, so Max Hastings, who's a journalist, and not a particularly friend of uh, New Labour, but uh, he wrote this in The Guardian in 2006. He said, Many of those who have witnessed at close quarters SOFA government believe that it has been a disaster. Far from creating a climate of healthy informality, it has indulged chronic indiscipline. Much good practice has been abandoned that should not have been. The dreary, unsexy system of assembling civil servants for ministerial meetings at which minutes are taken and decisions formally recorded is discovered to possess virtue after all. You know, sofa government just didn't work. <laughs> nice though it sounds, the chicken wings and all the rest of it. <laughs> um, it. It just doesn't work. And the thing about wisdom is it brings in order and structure to things that makes things work. Um, and when you have wisdom and people operating wisely, then you have good structures set up in place. And I think that's quite encouraging to know, isn't it? Um, it shines a, 
just as practically apply this, it shines a light on what people think are dull and uninteresting jobs in life. Um, there used to be a lady in our church who um, worked in a tax office in Birmingham. And she hated her job. And uh, I mean, a couple of times I tried to encourage her that actually, you know, we need a tax system. And so it's actually a really important thing to do. Whatever it is you're doing in the tax office. I'm sure it's really important that you do it well. And so be encouraged. Because, you know, it really matters. Um, and, uh, you know, but there's many jobs like that. You know, teachers that write school reports and get bored and fed up with it. Why do we have to do all this paperwork? Um, or a GP keeping up up-to-date health records on, on your patients, or uh, you know, report, academics reporting to funding bodies just to get money out of them. You have to write reports and stuff. I mean, why do we have to do all these things? Well, for, apart from practical reason for getting money, <laughs> um, it's actually really important to bring order and, and discipline to these things. Um, wisdom det- dictates that sort of thing. And sometimes we lose sight of the importance of doing well what seems like things that are dead ends and, and quite dull, really. But they're really important. So be encouraged, especially if you're a Christian. Be encouraged that the job that you're doing really matters and is contributing and uh, is a fruit of wisdom. Um, now, we could be wiser, no doubt. And there could be better ways of doing things. But wisdom will help you. But moving more directly to the, the, the work for the kingdom, the kingdom of God, how important it is that the church of Jesus Christ, the visible kingdom of God on earth, has good order about it. That a church that is well organized and that people know what they're doing and what they're supposed to be doing um, is a blessing to everyone. That, uh, you know, you need good leaders you need shepherds who can care and guard for the flock diligently and faithfully. Those who are in diaconal roles um, need to take seriously. They need to serve the church in practical ways. Um, and think about how the church sets up rules for doing things in church life. Um, and sometimes you need those, th- you need those things. Uh, some of my pastor friends who are not in the EPCW are kind of horrified at the, the fact that we've got this thick book of order <laughs> And maybe it could be streamlined, but you know it's, it's quite a thick book, and uh, and we have uh, systems in place for training ministers and procedures to go through to get things done. And uh, my pastor friends and other denominations they're they're kind of horrified that we we do all this and we give so much time to these sort of things. But it really matters if you want to have good leadership in the church, um, and uh, then it, it it helps. And it's wisdom in a practice to have systems in place like that that are in accord with God's word. Sometimes it can be over the top, um, but churches need something in all these areas so that things can run well, so that Christians can grow and flourish. It's so that Christians can grow and flourish well. You see, it's God's church, and our lives belong to God. And therefore, shouldn't we expect, as we receive his wisdom when we ask, that good order comes into operation in church life and in our personal lives as our families become more ordered and less chaotic. Wisdom will have its effect in your life. 
So structure and order. Secondly, verses 21 to 28, uh, notice that there is um, safety and contentment amongst the people of God. Uh, So in verse 21, uh, we see this, that uh, uh, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. Numerous people. Uh, A fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 22, 17. A partial fulfillment. The people of God are numerous as as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And um, and then we see, and we see also that Solomon's dominion extends far beyond merely Israel and Judah. Um, so verse 21, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, east to west, uh, and to the border of Egypt to the south. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And this wise rule of Solomon um, as king uh, has a number of features that become clear as you go through this. Uh, first of all, let me just point out a couple of them. Uh, first of all, there's peace for the whole kingdom. Uh, verse 25. Um, Judah and Israel lived in safety. Peace for the kingdom. Safety for the kingdom. Uh, none of the other nations want to fight. They just want to bring tribute and live in peace. And tribute is, is when a lesser nation brings gifts of wealth to the greater nation as a sign of submission and desire for peace. That's what tribute is doing. And so uh, this was happening with Solomon's neighbors. Um, Solomon's neighbors knew better than to make trouble and stir up trouble, so they they paid the tribute and they could live in peace. And, And as a result, there was peace for Israel. Israel was enjoying the peace under this wise king. Um, now peace is something that Christians begin to experience as new citizens of the kingdom of God that uh, one of the things that Jesus Christ is able to do is he is able to effect a peace between two warring parties between God who has issues with us in our sin and us who are rebellious against God and yet Jesus Christ is able to to mediate between the two and bring the two together to bring about reconciliation and peace. And when when I say that, I don't simply mean that Christians experience an inner peace in their hearts, which they may do, but rather it is peace with God. It's the absence of enmity with God. That God himself has brought you into an environment of peace as he has reconciled you to himself. And that's what's, in fact, that's what you find. Uh, what you find is that this king is active and protecting and guarding his church against all its enemies. And so this is the, the wonderful thing about being a Christian. You, uh, however bad you think it's getting, it will never, it's never as bad as it could have been. Because <laughs> uh, the Lord is guarding his church and protecting his people. Um, here's the second thing about this kingdom. Uh, there is contentment and prosperity in the kingdom. So look at verse 25 again. Uh, so safety from Dan to Beersheba. And then he says, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. And the vine and the fig tree 
are images of prosperity in the kingdom of God. That everybody has enough that they can, they can sit under their vine and enjoy the, the heat of the day uh, under their fig tree and under their vine and uh, there's, a f- there's fruit coming and they, they live well under it. And that's a marvelous picture. And notice that this is true for everyone in Israel. This is, you know, one of the things that you notice about pagan nations in the, in the Old Testament is that, uh, and, and history is replete with this, that uh, when tyrants come into power with absolute power and they're only thinking about themselves, then the people suffer. And they haven't got enough for themselves. But under Solomon, this wise king, not only is he well supplied with hundreds of animals to, to feed his household and the administration, but all the people are content and have enough as well. It's an amazing picture that's painted here. And of course, this, this picture of, of happiness and contentment is a foreshadowing of the joy and the contentment that comes in the kingdom of God under Jesus Christ. That as we become recipients of the treasures of heaven, we too begin to experience that joy and that contentment that comes with being a citizen of heaven. Now, we don't get to experience all the treasures just now. Uh, As it were, we have an inheritance. It's like we are children growing up and it's held in trust for us to when we come of age, as it were, when we go to glory, and the inheritance will all be ours. But we can begin to taste the benefits of it, even here today. And uh, this is what the prophet Micah speaks of prophetically about the mountain of the Lord. And he's looking eschatologically. He's looking ahead to the future. But he uses the same imagery. He says, they shall sit, this is the mountain of the Lord, and he says, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. You see, the Lord has spoken for his people. And he's looking ahead, Micah's looking ahead to this glory that is ours. On the mountain of the Lord, the blessings of heaven. So the kingdom of God is here under one all-wise king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Solomon foreshadows that in all his wisdom, foreshadows the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. One slightly discordant note about Solomon. Um, You'll notice in verse 26... Uh, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Um, What's wrong with that? (laughs) Sounds like more wealth. What's wrong with that? Well, God gave a warning about the the future kings of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Uh, They didn't have a king at that point. He says, when you have kings, they must not own lots of horses. And they must not go to Egypt to get more horses. And you see, what was the point there? Well, the point is that Israel needed to trust the Lord, not to trust in other nations, not to trust Egypt, not to trust in its mighty armies, but to trust the Lord. And so a warning sign is, is indicated here um, by the number of horses. Um, 
somebody described this as uh, kind of like uh, you know a, a lovely meal, but in the middle of it, there's a, this nasty fish bone, <laughs> which you have to kind of you choke on for a second, and then you have to spit it out. And the story of Solomon is a little bit like that. It's got these wonderful pictures. But there's all these fish bones that seem to get worse <laughs> as time will go on. Because one of the other things they were prohibited from having was many wives. Well, in the end, Solomon will have 700 wives. So there's a little kind of hidden warning here uh, about uh, the state of Solomon. For all his wisdom... He was not perfect. He was only a foreshadowing of Christ, not Christ himself. And, uh, however, for Jesus Christ, of course, there are no fish bones. Uh, Jesus is perfect in every, every respect. He has all wisdom. Indeed, he is our wisdom. And with him, uh, we, are, uh, we can enjoy the blessings. Uh, to be with him is to be in the best place. Here's the last thing. Uh, wisdom glories in God's works. Wisdom glories in God's works. The Verses 29 to 34. And uh, the key idea to remember here is in verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom. This is not about Solomon having a native wisdom. This is all about God giving wisdom. Um, We are wrong to focus on Solomon and praise him for his wisdom when all the good gifts come from God. And we are to remember him. Um, Wisdom is a gift of God. Uh, When I first became a Christian over 40 years ago, um, I heard many people say to me, especially my my student friends uh, and some members of my family, they would say to me, and you know, my student friends were all scientists, because I was studying science at the time. And uh, they would say to me, when you go to church, you have to leave your brain at the door. Um, because how can a, a, a rational person believe all this stuff? Right, so you have to leave your brain at the door. That's what they say. And in fact, they suggested that I never quite pick it up again when I left it at the door the first time. Because I still believe it. And um, so I was being put under this kind of regime of mockery amongst my friends. But, and I remember as a, a young new Christian, I actually felt this to be a threat, and I worried at the time that it might actually be true, that somehow I was giving up any kind of rational thought or wise thinking, simply to be a Christian. But if you read these last few verses in 1 Kings chapter 4, you will see that God-given wisdom, far from hindering your scientific inquiry, actually stimulate it and give it purpose. So those of you who are in research, you're doing a good work under God. Um, Because that's what wisdom does. It creates uh, a curiosity. And and actually, when you are truly wise... It preserves intellectual rigor in pursuing the things of nature. Um, 
You see how Solomon's life is described. Verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of the, of the Egypt for he was wiser than all the other, all the men all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in, all, uh, was in all surrounding nations. And he, it's, and it's encouraging to us, I think, as Christians, that not only is it possible, is it, is it possible to live in relationship to God and be wise, um, it's actually expected that you become wise as a Christian. In ways that the pagan world will respect and understand. You see? Now not everybody is going to be blessed with wisdom to the extent that Solomon was. But we should expect some Christians to be amongst the best thinkers in the world. The most rigorous thinkers. The best scientists. The best mathematicians. And so on. And whatever skill you put yourself to, your handiwork, if you're good with your hands and the wisdom that comes with that, you can expect that some people who are in those, those kind of trades and businesses will be amongst the best in the world because they have God-given wisdom. And that in itself is an answer to the idea that you leave your brain at the the door when you come to church. Because people will be able to see it. And in fact, people will want to find out more about it. That's what it seems to be suggesting. People came to Solomon to find out from his wisdom. God-given wisdom. So we should expect Christians to be good writers. Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. Uh, he was a bit of a scientist in a polymath, verse 33. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. I mean, it's like one of these little weeds that you see walking past on a wall. And you look at it and you think, what is that? And Solomon's interested. You and I are probably not. But <laughs> he's interested. He wants to know where that comes from. What is it? How does it work? And uh, this is the kind of thing that wisdom does for you. It makes you interested and so it's an encouragement, especially to anybody who's involved in science. You know, um, press on with that in- inquiry into science and discovery. Um, this is what wisdom does for you. Friends, this is what being in the kingdom of God uh, under Jesus Christ does to us. We begin to walk in the footsteps of our king. And his wisdom shapes how, how you, you and I see and value the world around us. Um, how you work. It affects how you work. It affects... Uh, how you work and keep it, like Adam did in the garden. You begin to work and keep your environment with all wisdom that God gives you. Becoming a Christian and growing as a Christian is life-transforming in so many ways as you live under this king. One last comment to make about this. People who develop a wide interest in God's creation are always interesting people to spend time with not only are you interested you become interesting (laughs) and uh, how Christians need to grow in in being interesting and we become interesting even to non-Christians 
Well, glorious picture of the effect, wisdom and its effects in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this picture that's of Solomon, who really was wise, but uh, presents to us a picture of the kingdom of God under the Lord Jesus Christ. It foreshadows what it means to be a Christian living in contentment under his rule. And uh, we rejoice that you've dr- drawn us into that kingdom and we can uh, begin to increasingly experience that joy and contentment and safety and peace with him. And we pray you to uh, fill our minds and our hearts with uh, 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 eager inquiry into the, your ways and all the things that you've done in your works. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.